raise a spoon to Grandma, who always took all the hungry cousins to McDonald's for McNuggets and the Play Play Slide. Have something sweet in her honor. Come to McDonald's and treat yourself to the Grandma McFlurry today. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And participate in McDonald's for a limited time. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Marcus Erickson flies under the twin checkers, and he has achieved racing immortality. He wins the 106th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. There you go. The 109th face, I believe, on the Indianapolis Motor Speedway's Borg Warner Trophy. Featuring this year's Indianapolis 500 winner presented by GameBridge, Marcus Erickson. Uh, this trophy to my left, this Borg Warner Trophy, has been in existence since 1936. Uh, there are winners' faces on this, our 106 runnings, 108 faces, because we had in 1924 and 31, we actually had two winners, and Tony Hallman on that. So it is special, special people that get an opportunity to have their face on this trophy. Congratulations, Marcus, on your fantastic achievement. To win the biggest car race in the world and the world's biggest one-day sporting event is something really special. It cements your place in history. Ah, it looks amazing. Uh, you know, it was just just the whole process, like we talked about, like we saw there. You know, being up in North Carolina, meeting Will, and working with him was uh, was just super special. And seeing seeing how he works a little bit uh, was was very impressive. And then seeing the end result and being on this trophy, you know, it's just uh, yeah. It's still I'm still pinching myself. First of all, I just want to touch on that video. I, I yeah, obviously Kenny. <laughs> Being the second speed up to Kenny is, is, is super cool. And also the fact that me and Kenny, we work together. You know, he was the one that found me when I was 15 and, and helped me in my early career. So he's, he's been a big part of, you know, me becoming the driver I am today. So it's, it's very cool to see that message. And that, that, that means a lot to me. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan in Indianapolis, you heard from the reigning winner of the world's greatest race, who picked up some more hardware last week in Indianapolis, Marcus Erickson, the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Doug Bowles, a recent in-studio guest on this year's program. My name is Kevin Lee. Kurt Cavan is with us as always. And Josh Molinix is in our Indianapolis studios on Monument Circle. We'll get to your Twitter questions and comments coming up at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan. But, oh, boy, does the news ferry continue to deliver. We'll talk about the Borg Warner uh, presentation from last week and, and Marcus seeing his, his image. But we've got bigger stories to come through, and I don't know what order we want to start from. Maybe in reverse order and from what's happened the latest. We got the news last night officially from NTT Data that they were no longer going to be a part of the Chip Ganassi Racing Organization. And then this morning, we got the confirmation that they are indeed headed to Aero McLaren SP. And Tony Kanaan is going to be in their fourth entry for the Indianapolis 500. So a lot of things to sift through there, but I think that's where we should start, Kurt. Well, I think we should start with the fact that Tony Kanaan has a chance to win his second Indianapolis 500. That's, that's a legitimate program. And by legitimate, I mean a chance to win. Obviously, as we've discussed in recent uh, days and weeks on this program, is that 
you know, this team already finished second last year, finished fourth last year, two different cars, plus adding the 2016 Indianapolis 500 winner with Alexander Ross to the other two drivers, of course, Pato Award and Felix Rosenquist. So adding Tony Kanaan, a driver who continues to be in his uh, advanced aged, we can joke with him about that, but he continues to be a legitimate contender to win the 500. Uh, he's a great teammate relative to working with other guys. He'll fit in very well with with uh, Rosenquist and Pato and, and Rossi, although the dynamic will be interesting to watch. But this is a car that can win the race. And, you know, we spend a lot of time and we will get to it yet in this program, I think, tonight. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the 33rd or 34th or 35th entries into the respective fields. But when it comes to adding a car, uh, you know, sort of out of the regular list of competitors and that car can win the race, that's pretty important uh, to the discussion. And so Canaan being back in the 500 is is obviously significant. This is a car that can win the race. This is a driver that can win the race. And you think back just a couple of years ago, it looked like Kanan's career might be coming to an end. And lo and behold, he's still uh, fielding a good ride and and uh, a, a car capable of winning. And and that's all a driver at any point in his career, particularly his uh, lot in life, so to speak. That's all he could ask for. So good for him. There, there were a couple of reports that that's where he was headed. And we talked about this last week on the show and even the week before that that made perfect sense, and it made some sense because if Jimmy Johnson was going to return to Chip Ganassi Racing, there's not really room there. I wouldn't think they'd want to run two one-off programs. Uh, but then I've heard a little bit of rumbling that it's not set for Johnson at Ganassi. And then you saw Tony on the record for the first time since these rumors had come up with Nathan Brown of the Indianapolis Star. I'm going to say that was late last week saying, hey, hang on, uh, I know it's been reported I'm headed there, but I haven't agreed to anything, and I'm still talking to four different teams, and I'm summarizing, and I believe he said, and I've also had recent conversations with Chip Ganassi, with Chip Ganassi Racing, one of the two. So that started to make me think, hey, maybe there is something to that, that it's not a lock that Johnson is coming back, and if indeed that's not done, Chip Ganassi would be more interested in Canaan and I think we even touched on this last week. Great for Tony Kanaan because I think it's possible there was a little bit of a bidding war for his services. Yeah, this is a guy that, you know, just a few years ago was trying to piece together sponsorship programs uh, to get an effort on the grid, uh, not only for Indianapolis, but for the oval races or somehow to extend his career because he wasn't ready to be done as an IndyCar series driver. And he has gone, and and I think he would be the first to admit it, he's gone from being a guy looking to put money together to justify to a team owner that he should be in the car to a guy who very much likely commanded a different a different and higher number for his services at Indianapolis. You know, we've talked about a lot on this show over the years that experience really matters at Indianapolis. And later on in this show, we're going to talk more about another Indianapolis 500 winner who has a shot uh, to be in this race. And you just cannot undervalue uh, the importance of, of having experience at Indianapolis, knowing how, 
you know, the month goes and how, how you need the car to feel and what the car needs to do in traffic and, and on down the line, just so many things that come with being an experienced driver. And, and so a guy like Kanan and others um, are very, are valued at this point in their career, even if, if they're not running on a regular basis, they don't need to be, you know, in the GMR Grand Prix. They don't need to be running at Texas Motor Speedway in advance of the 500. They can show up. Uh, they can help their teammates. They can be big personalities for the sponsors and they can win the Indy 500. And that's what Tony Kanan is at this point in his career. And let's get to NTT because that's not likely a coincidence that this is all intertwined. Uh, Kanan drove an NTT car for Chip Ganassi Racing. And even when he's been in other places, I believe he has retained a personal services agreement with them. And they've done that with some other drivers over the years. So I've talked before about how often I would see Tony in the paddock doing things last year. And, you know, a presumption was that's part of his deal with Chip Ganassi Racing. It may have just been simply a part of a deal with NTT uh, as the title sponsor of the series and as a partner with Chip Ganassi Racing. So that simply could transfer over. There was really no announcement on what all else is involved. Is he a year-long ambassador for the program? But that would make a lot of sense, that NTT as the series title sponsor is going to use Canon to activate with their guests and, and be involved. So that's a part of that. And then... Well, how did this happen? So this wasn't uh, shattering news last night when we first saw that. Uh, I believe maybe Racer.com pointed that out a couple of weeks ago. And now that this is all out and done, I can tell you what I know and, and also what I didn't know from what I was hearing over the summer. And one of the reasons I started backtracking just a little bit on, yeah, it's 99% Palo would not come back to Ganassi was around the Toronto weekend, uh, I was told that NTT really likes Alex Pillow. And that may have some involvement in this, that Chip Ganassi Racing might have decided that uh, if we want to retain NTT, oh, and then I also heard that the contract was coming to a close. So if, if they wanted to retain NTT as a sponsor, they might want to try to see if they can salvage something with Alex Pillow. And then they might also not want to yank him from the car immediately, which uh, I think a lot of us think was on the table and was a possibility around the Toronto weekend when that first came out. I don't know the 100% accuracy of that. And here's what we also don't know. What came first, Pelot trying to leave, or was it a combination? Was it simply Pelot tried to leave and the contract with Ganassi and NTT data was up at the same time and said, okay, uh, if, if he's not going to be here long-term, we're also going, or was it a combined pitch of we're going to get Alex Pillow, Errol McLaren SP, and we're going to get NTT or did, and, and this would, if you're a McLaren, you're going to listen, could have been at the behest of NTT data saying, um, we think we'd like to move somewhere else. And we like Alex. We'd like to join your program, Zach Brown. And we'd like to bring around along the driver to drive our car. Let's talk. Those are all unknowns, but those are the scenarios that I see. What else am I missing in that? 
No, I don't. I don't think you're missing anything. It'd been ten years. NTT Data had been with uh, Chip Ganassi Racing. It was probably not a single thing that that uh, was a problem for them. They, I like your theory that they've they've become attached to Alex Pillow, uh for a lot of reasons, and there's a lot of reasons to for you know we've talked about his professionalism and the way he carries himself, and and he's a good spokesman for a company like that. You know, it also probably once the discussion started taking root, you know, NTT Data had worked with uh, Felix Rosenquist at Chip Ganassi Racing. It had worked worked with Tony Kanaan. Uh, obviously, it had uh, the the ties with Alex Pillow that we've talked about. So when you put all that together for 2023 and 24, it, it really does make a lot of sense. Uh, I don't know what the motivation was to leave. Uh, maybe sometimes it's just a change of scenery. Uh, let's try it a little bit differently. But but the combination of those drivers and the association with the company uh, made a lot of sense. Well, think about this. Errol McLaren, SP, McLaren can offer partners, sponsors, the same thing that they're offering drivers, a taste of the hottest flavor of the month, Formula One, that you can be a part of our program and we'll get you a little tiny sticker on the Formula One car, and we'll get some of your guests involved in some of these events. And NTT Data is not just an American company. This is a company based in Japan. This is a, a worldwide company. So, you know, that's unfortunately something that the others cannot offer. Yeah, I think uh, I was going to get to that, but I knew you wanted to to weigh in with something else. But I think that's, that's going to be a big lure for a lot of um a lot of companies and parties, I guess I should say, not necessarily companies and sponsors, but but just partners or drivers or mechanics or the opportunity to play in both fields uh, is going to be it's going to be an interesting draw. And, and, you know, it's going to be an advantage for Aero McLaren SP. Uh, it may be a, a sole advantage for theirs. And if unless Michael Andretti's organization can offer a similar type uh, situation, but, but Aero McLaren SP is kind of a, it's got a, a, a shiny newness to it. And again, 10 years was the association with NTT data and Chip Ganassi racing, or I think it will have been by the time mm-hmm. it's uh, done. And so, you know, sometimes it's just interesting to see how the other guys operate and how, what they have to offer. And maybe it's just time to do something different. So, you know, it's it may not have been any one thing, but just a chance to do something different. And again, to reiterate on the track, now Aaron McLaren SP has the drivers who finished second, third, fourth, and fifth in the 2022 Indianapolis 500 as a part of their lineup in 2023. So that's fantastic. And like our buddy Indy 44, Matt Arcoletta, posted a little while ago, uh, we need more room in the hate cauldron. Because Chip and Zach are in there. So think about it from this. It's one thing to take a driver, but when a sponsor leaves and then the other way around, we don't know this, but a lot of people think Taylor Kyle is going from being the president of Aaron McLaren SP. And once his non-compete is done, he will be announced at Chip Ganassi racing. I don't know that. Uh, that makes a lot of sense, but it's possible he ends up somewhere else, but that would be one coming back Chip's way if indeed that happens. But. Sponsors and championship drivers are really hard to come by. So uh, we need those two mic'd up. 
anytime they come across each other. That that yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah that's that's true. And and I don't know if we need a score sheet to you know like a a, a scoreboard for uh, you know Arrow McLaren SP two. Chip Ganassi won. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what the tally is exactly, well, but Ganassi on... can still throw out championships in 500. So that's still very much in their way, which yeah. goes back to why, uh, I think McLaren was well served to not go down the Kyle Bush or Kyle Larson path. Let's get the driver who also is a probably better commercially. You're, you're going to get more out of Tony Kanon than you're going to get out of Kyle Bush or Kyle Larson because let, let's think about this. You get those guys. As your brand driver for the Indy 500, and then you have things you want them to do in May. Oh, I'm sorry, they're not available. They've got to go back to Charlotte, or they're just not used to doing those kind of things. Like a Tony Kanaan is. You're going to ask Kyle Busch to do that? Uh, no, I'm going to choose Tony Kanaan to represent and visit with my sponsors and other partners and the fans ten times out of ten on that one. So it just becomes an easy decision for McLaren. Well, I, I would agree with that. Uh, I think it's more of a, you know, you have a chance to be a long-term play with Tony Kanaan where, uh, you know, outside of the month of May, you know, they can, they can use Tony, you know, pre Indy 500. They can use him post Indy 500. If, if he indeed has a strong relationship with NTT data, uh, I wouldn't, I would not go so far as to say that Kyle Bush wouldn't do some of the things that they need him to do in May. Yes, he's really? not going to be. Well, look, look, I, I couldn't, he's not going to be available. Well, largely that's true, but Fernando Alonso, I didn't think would do anything. And he was much more, you know, willing to do some of the things that I never thought he would do in his first Indy 500. He, he came here and really played ball better than most. Okay, fair. I'm going to say then uh, Kyle Busch only. Kyle Larson will do the Alonzo. Yeah, you're path. probably right. I don't know that Kyle Busch is going to play ball as much. Yeah, you're probably right. But uh, I just – I wouldn't completely rule it out. But but I think Kanan is is a better play for the, for the reasons you described. You know, what was the details? Did we get the details? Was it like 10 races that NTT Data would, would be on Felix Rosenquist's car? Uh, so they'll play a role with Rosenquist on on the uh, six car. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we have a car number for Tony Kanon? Do we no, know that? So that so I think the choices are I could see them doing five, six, seven, eight, and NTT is going to be on the Kanon car for the five hundred, and they have been on an eight car. I believe Ryan Briscoe's Ganassi car was eight at one point. Am I getting that correct? And that was an NTT data car. So they have history with that car. And then the other with Kanan is we'd love to see 11. And who knows, maybe 711 is still coming along with him as an associate partner on that car. So I think I would guess those are the choices. So you're assuming the eight then would. Oh, and I'm sorry. The eight is already filled. That's not going to be a play. So 11. Yeah. Yeah. 11 makes sense. Yeah. It, um, the four, could it be the four, five, six, seven? Um, yeah. Uh, am I forgetting? Is the four taken by anybody? Dalton Kellett? It, it been... was Dalton Kellett. So we don't know if Foyt is going to label one of their cars as the four. That's right. But I would think they would. Yeah, they probably they, would. They could probably talk out of it. It's not like it's not a leader circle car. Um, 
So, so they could maybe he could be convinced to do the 41 or something like that. But you're right. So four and 11, or maybe there's a, another number that has a, you know, do they pick a, a number that has history with McLaren? Let's think down that path. That would make some more sense. You know, tell us the number of Johnny Rutherford's car uh, with McLaren in the 70s or something like that. That would make a lot of sense. Yeah, it would. Uh, but that um, that McLaren uh, operation as it relates to IndyCar and Formula One to a lesser degree from this program show, it continues to be the gift that keeps on giving. I just don't know what else Zach Brown can deliver for us from the news portion of this show, but I'm sure he'll come up with something. Apologies, by the way, to the reigning Indy 500 winner for getting his car number. Uh, yeah, the eight is occupied, and yeah. that's that's Marcus Erickson. Um, oh, the other thing we got out of this is we did – I don't know that we had seen it written down. It's been said by us and others – that Alexander Rossi was going to be in the seven car and Felix Rosenquist was going to be in the six. So we have that confirmed. Maybe that was confirmed in a social media graphic recently as well, but but we see that written down there in that sense. Do we have any problem? I know it came up in a social media standpoint and and we saw some comments relative to the use of the six, which, um, you know, the, the Schmidt Peterson part of the organization had said they would reserve that for Robert Wickens. Now, Aaron McLaren is, is saying, uh, you know, we weren't part of that arrangement. We're going to go ahead and use the six sequentially. It makes a difference to me. It doesn't, it doesn't mean anything from the standpoint that if, if Robert was ready to run, they would run him in a car based on his ability to run and his talent. And the car number is not so much significant from my standpoint, but I know that, that some people feel differently. I I didn't know how you felt about that. The use of that number, given sort of its history with, with Robert Wickens. I guess I'd be interested in what Robbie thinks about this. And it may not be that big of a deal to him. And if, and when he decides to run again, he's not going to run full time. We know this in 2023, you know, the team may be in the mindset, of, hey, we'll give them number six back. I, I don't know that running the number six is all that critical to Robert Wickens. I don't know that that had, number had any special significance to him. So if and when he drives an IndyCar again, my guess is he does not care what number he is or certainly does not care that it's number six. That is not going to be the story. That had been his number for the three quarters of a season that he drove and Zach Brown is correct that that was a previous organization. Um, it, it's, you know, a little bit of a delicate situation maybe helps that he's still a part of the organization that he's still there and it may have his blessing, but my guess is to Robert, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I think, I think most drivers would say, I just want to drive. I want to be in a car. I want to be a part of the organization. And I want to have a chance to win races and whether that's six, sixty-six, or two hundred and six, just just let me in a car. I'm not yep. sure Elio is too worried about being in the 06 versus the number three. Um, you know, there are some drivers. You know, that obviously, if you're a Foyt, if you work on the Foyt team, you pretty much want to be on the 14. But but even Foyt didn't run Foyt 14 his whole life, his whole career, and and his success at Indy wasn't even defined by the 14, even though. It was obviously uh, symbolic of 
of AJ Foyt and AJ Foyt Racing later in his career. So next thing, let's get to something else we've talked about on this show. I brought it up a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago or so, when I started to do the math on the Indy 500 from what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking, to where I, I said, I think we can get to 34, maybe 35 legitimate entries where you're not going to be able to say this is the one that is going to be bumped. And these are going to be the two that are going to be bumped. And I said, I think Ray Hall Letterman, Flanagan. And I couldn't put my finger on it. I'd heard it a couple of different places, but I think they are looking to run a fourth. Well, an intrepid reporter actually made the phone call and asked Bobby Ray Hall this same question. And Marshall Pruitt wrote it within the last couple of days. And Ray Hall confirmed they are planning on running a fourth car in next year's 500. And they already have the sponsorship for it. They have not picked out a driver at this point. So that's one more in the cross them off. I think you can count on that happening list. I do too. And and I think, you know, just the same as Aero McLaren SP, I think the odds have to go towards somebody who can wield that car with a chance to, to run up front. And I think that's Ryan Hunter Ray. I think he is the most likely he has driven for that team. Obviously, that's where his his uh, current uh, IndyCar series career started. I guess when I say current, but you know it wasn't his champ car experience. But when it came to what was then the IndyCar series, uh, it was with Ray Hall. They have a good relationship. Uh, he's a driver that if if you've got your sponsorship program put together, he represents you well. He's got the credentials. He's obviously been fantastic in Indianapolis. And I just can't see them them going down the path, especially when they've got, you know, a couple of other drivers in that in that camp that that haven't had the the type of success at Indianapolis that you'd need to win the race. Obviously, Graham Rahal, uh, very much capable of winning the Indy 500 and and was in position to a couple of years ago and has been in other instances. Uh, but with Jack Harvey and Christian Lundgaard, you wouldn't consider them front runners at this point. So having a guy like Ryan Hunter Ray makes every sense in the world to me. And so much so that, that I'm not sure I can come up with somebody else that fits the category or the description of what they should want. I can come up with another name. Now, I think you're right. I suspect it is Ryan Hunter Ray because. I get the impression he has optimism about something for the Indy 500. And I don't think it's with Ganassi. Um, by the way, I've heard it mentioned that he's a Ganassi development driver and he's already under contract with them. Maybe that's true. I don't know. I went back and looked at the story from last May and there was no reference that it was multi-year. It may have just been for the rest of 2022 and I know from talking to him, he feared that there was not room for him as uh, an endurance driver in the Ganassi stable in the Cadillac sports car side, because they're only going to run three drivers. They're only running one car all season, the second car. So I, I think there might be a seat for the Royal X24, maybe, maybe. But beyond that, Dixon is going to be their endurance driver for Daytona, Sebring, if they run a, a third at Watkins Glen and Petit Lamar. So my guess is Hunter Ray is available. But here's another one to throw out. Sponsorship is hard to come by. Uh, I can name a driver who has guaranteed 
good sponsorship who will get you a lot of attention. He's not as qualified as Ryan Hunter Ray, but he did okay on ovals last year. And it's Jimmy Johnson. And until Jimmy Johnson is announced with Chip Ganassi Racing or someone else, I would not rule him out in any scenario. It's a driver that has budget, that is competent in year two. You could maybe even go a step higher than that. Uh, because the Ryan Hunter race scenario means that Ray Hall, Letterman, Landing, and Racing went out and found a partner paying over a million dollars because Ryan doesn't come with budget. I suspect they did because they have a fantastic sales group. And you look at all of the rotating primaries they have throughout the year. So my guess is that one of those associates throughout the year is a primary on an Indy 500 car with a a former winner and a former champion that's going to have a good chance. But I'm going to just, let's throw that in the back of our mind that there is a slight chance that that could be Jimmy Johnson. The reason I'm willing to give it a slight chance is because, you know, when, when Bobby Rahal comes out and says he's got the funding uh, or knows, you know, when he says he's got the funding for a fourth car, you're kind of under the sponsor. You're assuming it's it's his sponsor, but if he knows how to get the money for the fourth car, then then that speaks to the Jimmy bringing some budget to the program. Uh, So it just depends on, uh, you know, how how those numbers come together to fund that car. But if if he knows that uh, Jimmy, if he's counting Jimmy Johnson's money in the in the equation, I could see that uh, easily see that I do have a little bit of wonder how he comes up with four with an extra million dollars plus to run this car at Indy from the from the budget and the sponsors that he's already got but that does leave open this possibility I mean I think he can do it I don't think it's a huge ask but I also think that new money uh, certainly comes together uh, from a from a from a different source easier than it does coming from within what you already have Now, I'm going to refute my own theory with this thought. Uh, This has been talked about for, I heard about this for the first time, I'm going to say two months ago or more than that. And at that time, I think everyone would have assumed that Jimmy Johnson, if he raced, was racing for Ganassi. And two to three months ago, as we've learned in the last few weeks, was it, who had the story this week? Maybe it was Nathan again, um, that, Jimmy really did think after Iowa that he was probably going to do the entire season next year and was going to be doing it with Chip Ganassi racing. So from that standpoint, for, for Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan to, to start thinking internally, hey, this is going to happen, that means they had a sponsor. And I don't think they were counting on Carvana at that point. That doesn't mean they wouldn't still do a deal. If they haven't signed with someone, no one's going to turn down budget, and it would be simply, yeah, we like Jimmy if he's available, and he's going to bring money to the table, or simply, we don't have to pay him. Carvana can pay him, and we can get the driver for free, and that's profit for the race team. So I, I wouldn't rule it out, but I, I do believe they have someone from within or maybe someone new that they brought on board to say, hey, you can be a primary for the Indy 500 and associate the rest of the year. So if if Jimmy isn't looking at, at Ray Hall, if that's not Jimmy's destination, where else could Jimmy be in line other than Chip Ganassi Racing? I still think he's going to end up at Chip Ganassi Racing, but 
Where else could he be? The seats, and we'll go down here in the next segment. I've, I've done a tally again of where I think things stand, but uh, the choices are going to be a third car, Dale Coyne Racing, uh, one of the Dreyer and Reinbold Racing cars, talking Foyt into doing a third car, talking Ed Carpenter into doing a fourth car, talking Penske into doing a fourth car. There are very few seats available. So back this is this is kind of why I threw this out there. I think the only two landing spots, maybe you could go three. I, I would put Dale Coyne in an extra entry as a possible landing spot for Jimmy. But Ganassi's number one, this Ray Hall seat, if it's not already been committed to Ryan Hunter Ray, number two, and then somewhere like a Dale Coyne racing, or if Ed can be talked into it, three and four. We'll get into that and what else we know and what's happened with the Indy 500 and plenty other items to uh, uh, catch you up on and catch us up on in a moment. Trackside, 93.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Ed Carpenter, and you're listening to Trackside. Thank you for staying with us as we continue on November 1st. How about this? To talk about the Indianapolis 500. And it felt like it should have been the first day of practice for the Indianapolis 500 today. Mid to upper 60s. We will take that for as long as we can. So we've only gotten through two stories in the first segment. So we'll eventually have to pick up the pace a little bit. And by the way, we do have a guest coming up later on the program. Uh, there were some things that happened in NASCAR over the weekend that were kind of interesting. So we'll bring in someone closer on the NASCAR scene to join us. Jamie Little from Fox Sports will be on the program before we're done tonight to talk about the championship. And, you know, I think beyond the fact that he came up with a video game move, Ross Chastain is a really interesting story. When I was covering an Xfinity race two or three years ago when no one wanted to talk to him, I bet I sat down with him for a half hour. This is someone that was nowhere two or three years ago and now is in the final four for a championship. So we'll talk about that, the truck championship, the Jamie will be working on on FS1 this weekend and more coming up later on. So we've talked about Errol McLaren uh, confirming a fourth car. Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan has confirmed they're going to run a fourth car. Here's where we stand. And Racer.com had a story today uh, coming up with a couple of new nuggets. So I, I said a few weeks ago that I count 34, maybe 35, perfect world 36 if the engine manufacturers would do 18 apiece as possibilities. Marshall comes up with the same number, but he gets there a little bit differently. And here's what I think is newsworthy out of his story. Um, You know, I keep asking our friend Ed Carpenter to text us during the show and tell us if he's going to run a fourth car and who it's for, because his phone, as they like to say, and Tim Broyles has to be blowing up with Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, Jimmy Johnson has probably put a call in there. Simona DiSilvestro already has a relationship. But Marshall's story says they are sticking to three cars. And if that's the case, where would either of the Kyles find a place in next year's Indy 500? I'm down to one. I think it's Dryer and Reinbold racing is their only hope. Yeah, that's uh, as I've I've stewed on that. We started talking about this maybe two weeks ago. Certainly last week. Uh, the more I thought about it, I think you're right. I think that's that's the uh, enviable position that Dryer and Reinbold would be in. That they could put this together with you know big time relevance. Obviously, they've been you know punching a little bit above their weight, so to speak, given they're not a full time team. 
they put two cars in the top 10 discussion uh, last year. And, and um, you know, Santino Ferrucci and Sage Karam has done, have done nice work for them. So, you know, that's a good, good, solid crew with obviously a chance to, to be competitive. So I like, I like your thinking on that one from a couple of weeks back. Yeah, I mentioned that last week, and I said I'm not going to rule out uh, one of the Kyles saying that Dryer and Reinbold is plenty good enough, uh, and it all depends on what their motivation is in being involved in next year's Indy 500 because uh, I'm I'm running out of places to see them. And if that's true, if Ed cannot be talked into running a fourth, and I get why he wouldn't. The, the goal is Ed wants to win the Indy 500 and has a great chance. Connor Daly wants to win the Indy 500, has a great chance. Remus VK is qualified up front. Every time has a great chance. Let's not dilute any of the focus on somebody doing this race for the first time. Now, all that said, I still would think there's a number because I would put a number on, all right, what would we do this for? If we had two cars and we're looking for a third, you know, say that's, um, I hear a top rate number. You might see people asking for one and a half million. That's what a team would charge for a quality ride for the Indy 500. So let's call it that. Well, if someone can pay me two, I'm thinking about it. And if they're willing to pay 2.5, yeah, I'm going to suck it up because that money is going to go into the program and help us do some things the rest of the year. But I think that's one of those where, you know, somebody asks you want to sell your house and your house is worth $200,000 and you don't want to sell it. And you say, yeah, I'll sell it for three fifty, And if they, uh, say, okay, you, oh, 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 all right, I guess we'll move. That kind of thing, right? Yeah, happened to me one time. So, yeah, <laughs> okay. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't a, a, a knock me down number, but it was certainly big enough for me to say, okay, uh, yeah, we can find something else. So I, I agree with it. Yeah. Now, now, is that likely to happen? Budget is not overflowing in this world, but you never know. Um, if someone really wants to fund Kyle Bush or Carl, Kyle Larson, in the Indy 500, uh, or if Jimmy indeed is looking for a spot, I still don't think he is. I think he's going to end up at, at Ganassi. Um, but th- those are some drivers that probably could uh, acquire some budget. So here's what I got at Borat, and I've kind of rephrased the list. I'm going to call it 26 full-time entries uh, because that's what I think we have guaranteed. I think we'll probably have 27, but we don't know whether that 27th is a fourth at Ganassi or a third at Dale Coin Racing. And I suppose there's always the chance that they just stick with three and two. So I'm calling it 26 for now. 27th is the Errol McLaren, just announced for Canon. 28th is Ed Carpenter. 29th is Marco Andretti that's been announced. I'm going to say 30 and 31, Marshall talked to Dennis Reinwell. I had not talked to him yet, but said we're planning on running on two cars. I don't know if he quoted him, but I suspect he reached out. So I, I believe that to be accurate. So there's 30 and 31. Ray Hall just said publicly, we're running a fourth card. There's 32. For 33, I'm going to say that's either the Ganassi fourth, which I think seems likely, or at least a Dale Coyne racing third. I have to believe that one of those two entries will run. So already we're not going to be in the situation we were last year trying to uh, get a deal together and piece three teams together in late April, early May. Actually, that was, yeah, it was late April to to get that done. Now, here's where the extras could come from. And I counted up engine partners as well. 
so let's keep an eye on on Honda. If Ganassi runs a fourth, that would be the 17th Honda. I believe they're fine doing that. I think they'd probably run 18, but it may depend on who the driver is. And maybe they run a 19th, depending on who the driver is. But a coin third would be 18th to get us to 34. And then here is where if if I, I had 35 as being realistically possible, thinking that Ed Carpenter would run a fourth, either for Simona or for one of the Kyles. If that doesn't happen, then we might stick at 34. Here are the scenarios that I find for a 35th. And I know the Foyt team was written about that they could pull out an extra car. They're still saying no, but they could. Kurt, I don't think they're going to pull out a third car if it's the 34th or 35th entry. Uh, I agree. It's they're they're going to be, you know, it stands to reason, and I have great respect for the program, but it stands to reason one of their cars is going to be in the bottom five to ten. You know, it it just it just is, and so you don't want to be too competitive with yourself. You've got a rookie driver in Benjamin Peterson and San Antonio Ferrucci, who's very very good, but is is new to the program. So I don't see that happening. I, I think they, if something falls apart and we're down to 32 and they say, hey, we're going to make the race, we do it. And then the same case scenario, I guess, if uh, Kyle Bush and his sponsor say, we have to give it a go this year and somebody wants to pay the full $1.5 million free or whatever, then, yeah, they'd probably pull out a third car. And, and with those kind of resources, they'd probably make the field. So here's where I see the possibility of getting to 35. One, Ganassi and Coin both have to run a fourth and a third car. And then Roger Penske has to be convinced that we must get Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson, if Jimmy Johnson is not part of it, in the show. And I'm telling Tim we're running a fourth. Yeah, and I don't not, think that's that likely either, but that's... I, I don't yeah. think that's too likely, and and I don't have insider information on this, but you know, I also know that Roger thinks, you know, he's been stuck on win number eighteen for a while. He wants to win the Indy Indy five hundred, mm-hmm. and he has three guys that could that could win the Indy five hundred, and they've not been as competitive as he would like. So I think they would focus on the three that they've got. I agree with you, but I, I'm just throwing that out there as I think that's the scenario to get us to 35. And there's one other, and it's back to Ed Carpenter, someone overwhelming Ed Carpenter to put a name driver with a big sponsor behind him. That gets us to 35, or maybe that only gets you to 34 if, you know, Ganassi is running a fourth, is Coin running a third. That, that is involved with both of those. But if it's either Carpenter or Penske running an extra car, that would keep it at 18 each. Uh, actually, it'd be 18 and 17. It'd be 18 for Honda and only 17 for Chevy. A 17th Chevy would either be a Foyt third, uh, a Carpenter fourth, or a Penske fourth. And so, as you were going So my through, guess right now is going to be 34. Yeah, That's the number I'll, I'll throw out now. I like your number. I was getting text, and I was during your your breakdown. I was looking to make sure Ed Carpenter wasn't one of those texting me to tell me what his plans were. <laughs> I think it. it I don't want to put a percentage on it, but I do think it's a higher percentage that Ed would run a fourth 
than Roger and Team Penske would run a fourth. Much more likely that it would be ECR rather than Team Penske. And the other thing I was going to ask you, in all your algebra there and geometry, do you have Stefan Wilson in in any of those? Because we've largely been talking about uh, Jimmy Johnson, Ryan Hutter-Ray, et cetera. You know, the Stefan Wilson Cusick program has got some some real legs. Does he fit in any of those discussions? Because so I, think, seats, I think he could. Yes. Here are the seats that are not claimed that we know of. They may be claimed. To a dryer and Reinbull. Santino Ferrucci is not an option. I'm not sure that Sage Karam is going to be back. He might be, but I would just say both are open at, at this point for that program. Uh, the Ray Hall car. We don't know who that is. We threw our guesses out there. The Ganassi fourth car. Probably Jimmy Johnson. Eh, don't know though. Don't know that for certain. An extra coin car. We don't even have the second car confirmed for the regular season, whether that's Sato, whether that's a combination of Sato and others. So that's potentially two openings there. And then any extra, whether it be an extra Chevy, whether it be Foyt, unlikely Carpenter, Penske, whatever. Drivers looking for a seat, some that would have budget or other um, attractive assets. On Ray, Kyle Busch, Kyle Larson, Jimmy Johnson, Simone Di Silvestro, Stefan Wilson, Sage Karam, Linus Lundquist, J.R. Hildebrand. We haven't talked about him. Um, Juan Pablo Montoya, who I don't think is going to be involved, but you can't cross off. And you haven't mentioned Takuma Sato. Uh, I think he he's as high on that list as anybody. Ha, true. I should put him on there. I think he's going to be in a coin car. I, do I just don't know how much he's going to be in a coin car. Is he going to be in all the ovals? Is he going to be Indy 500 only? But yes, Takuma Sato needs to be on that list. But I'm kind of – so really I would say there is one potential opening at coin because I think Takuma is going to be one of those. Charlie Kimball, Ed Jones. Oliver Askew, R.C. Enerson, Matthew Brabham, Stingray Rob has budget. Spencer Piggott was working on something last year. Oriel Servia was working on things as recently as a year ago. I haven't asked him if he's still efforting or not. I heard Zach Veach's name come up, that he might have some budget. That's a lot of drivers for about three or four seats. So that's what, but yes, I do see a path for Stefan Wilson where they could, what team would be willing to partner? Could they partner with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan? Maybe. That would be where the budget would come from. Uh, could it be in one of the Dryer and Reinbold cars? That makes, to me, a little bit more sense. Certainly could be in a Foy car, but if they're saying they're not going to run a third, that's probably not it. Could it be in a Dale Coin racing car, in a third car there? Yeah, that would make some sense. They like to do that. So I guess I'd put my odds on Dryer and Reinbold and Dale Coin racing, if indeed Cusick finds a landing spot for Stefan Wilson. Yep. I think Sato, I think Stefan Wilson, I think Jimmy Johnson, those three kind of rise above the rest for, for obvious reasons, different reasons even. I think those are the three I'd be looking at pretty closely. All right. We'll uh, get into some other things that we've missed in this first hour and plenty more to come. Uh, Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Okay, quick segment here. Uh, one other thought, though, when we were talking about the 500. 
and where people might end up. You know what? When we talk about Ryan Hunter Ray and whether he might end up with uh, Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan, we probably shouldn't rule out Chip Ganassi racing in a fourth car. There's at least one guy off the list with Tony Kanaan. And until we see Jimmy Johnson announce with that team, there's obviously already a connection. Hunter Ray spent 2022 working with Chip Ganassi Racing as an IMSA development driver, did a couple of endurance races, was the standby uh, relief driver if needed for IndyCar if someone had COVID or was sick or <laughs> was signed by another team midseason. That didn't happen, but uh, it almost did him being put in the car in that situation. So maybe he's an option there, Hunter Ray or Jimmy Johnson. Stay tuned on that one. Uh, so it may be a race for him, too, to see who can sign him first for a one-off situation. All right, coming up in hour number two, we'll talk more about the Indy 500. A uh, little bit of NASCAR with Jamie Little coming up. Tony Stewart's NHRA debut and plenty more all on the way. Oh, and Roger Penske is talking about more ovals for IndyCar. We'll get into that coming up in your tweets, too, before we're done. Trackside, 93.5, The Fan. Hi, this is Will Power, and you're listening to Trackside. Hour number two, thanks for staying with us. 93.5, 107.5, The Fan in Indianapolis. Josh Molinix is in our studio. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan, thanks for coming along with us tonight on the program. Before I forget, I did I mention on this show that I had a chance uh, through one of our Burger Bash auction winners to go to dinner with Paul Page at Prime 47 recently, our, our friend, Mark Allen is hosting an event with Paul coming up. He's in charge of the Dayton Bureau of Trackside, and Paul is going to be at the Dayton Masonic Center November 4th. So that's this week. Was that maybe Friday-ish? November 4th is Friday from 7 to 9.30, free and open to the public as well. So do a Google search on that, Dayton Masonic Center, and you can find out more about where to uh, visit and how to visit with Paul and everything along with that. Mark will be introducing him and Paul still tells fantastic stories. So that'll be a good opportunity to, to uh, feel a little bit of love for the Indy 500 in November and in o Ohio. Uh, okay. I mentioned that Jamie Little is going to join us a little bit later on and, and we'll talk more in depth about what's going on in NASCAR. But, you know, I, I understand this is an IndyCar program, but the uh, final moments of that race in Martinsville, transcended motorsports, more visibility. And and for one of the rare times, I think this is a good thing. You know, normally NASCAR might go viral because of a fight or something like this. In many ways, this is, I don't know, positive is the right way, but it, it's, it's something that's fun. It, it was fun the way Ross Chastain came up with something creative and unique to past five guys in the final quarter lap. The only thing I didn't like about it was, was Kyle Larson's reaction afterwards. And he was, he didn't think that was a good look for NASCAR. And then when a reporter tried to do a follow-up question, Kyle pitched it back at the reporter and said, why do you think it's a good thing? And the reporter wasn't the one saying it was a good thing. It was Kyle saying it was a bad thing for NASCAR. So I thought it was fine. I don't think it'll be something that we see on a regular basis. Yeah. Uh, I think generally car hits the wall, you throw the caution, but this was a short track. Martinsville is a, a pretty uh, low impact uh, place. If you're going to hit the wall 
Uh, you're not likely to come bouncing off the wall. And, and honestly, it only took two corners for that. When I first saw it, I was not watching live. It was sent to me and I, I didn't realize that he only did turns three and four. I thought he might've done the whole lap, but uh, that's not, not how it shook out, but it was very creative. I, I, I would like to be able to talk to Ross and find out, you know, how many laps in advance or how many, how many moments in advance did he think about that? Or maybe has it always been in the back of his mind, but, you know, did he make the decision coming off turn two that this is my only chance I've got to pick up an X number of spots. And this is, this is one way that it could happen. I mean, again, I've not heard that explained, so that would be fun to hear. And it was the moose car. So, you know, we've got our route for the moose car on this program uh, doing that at you know, Junior immediately in the booth saying, like a video game, and that's what it looked like. It looked like they had sped it up times three on the videotape replay. So uh, you're right. I don't think we'll see that again. I don't think they should do anything this week. You know, people are saying you've got to make a rule. I don't think that's a great idea to change the rules uh, in the championship. One, if he were to win the championship, people would be able to say, well, he won the championship because he did something that has been outlawed and was outlawed later in the season. But maybe you revisit it after the season because the the one concern from a safety aspect would be what if the the gate, you know, where a track wall often can open and maybe that sticks out just a quarter of an inch. And if you hit that, then that's going to do some real significant damage and maybe uh, push you out into traffic. So maybe that's not the best thing. Uh, so I, I suspect they could just say, hey, if you hit the wall, then you're not allowed to pick up any positions. But boy, that even doesn't make it simple because we have seen drivers just side by side bang into each other, hit the wall, and maybe one finishes four inches in front of the other and gets the position. Are you going to say if, if, if so that in that case, if you're on the inside and someone tries to pass you on the outside, you just slam them into the wall. That means they can't pass you, right? Yeah. And at Darlington is one place in particular where they ride the wall so closely that that I often think they've hit the wall. You know, even if they just kind of hit the edge of it or or kind of brushed it, but you know, leaving a stripe at Darlington's pretty much routine. So you know, there are some places where that would happen naturally. You just can't. I don't know that you can make a a, a rule that is you touch the wall, you're done. But uh, from a position standpoint, but it, it will be seen. They will have to come up with something or or mention uh, you know that 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 would not be allowed. You know, one of the first things I thought about was the snake at the end of the Indy 500. That we've seen that a few times now, and it's something that has to be in everyone's game plan to use it or to be able to combat it. So now do you want to be on the high line at the end of one of these short tracks? Or if you have a teammate, is it going to be hugely advantage to have a teammate, whether he be lapsed down or not, somehow get him a little bit behind me and just hug that top line on the final lap and make sure that nobody can do that. Um, my first thought is, until we see this happen again, let's not worry about it. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So let's move on to, to our next topic. Oh, and speaking in NASCAR, uh, I didn't really get a chance to follow too much, but tell me uh, about how Tony Stewart did in his uh, NHRA debut. I know it went quite well. 
It did. He reached the finals of top alcohol dragster at uh, Las Vegas. But there was something, a story within the story that I thought was pretty interesting. And, and that is, and if you follow drag racing at all, you know that reaction time is really the true measure of how the driver did. Uh, you know, coming up with the speed of the car is, is certainly goes to the team and, and how, the, how the engine's built, et cetera. But when you look at reaction time, so let's do this. He made, he made three qualifying passes. He went 0.075, 0.077, and 0.66. So, you know, pretty good, pretty good, uh, pretty good qualifying times. Uh, then in the finals, listen to this. He goes in the four rounds of, of head-to-head competition. Listen to these numbers. Talk about consistency. 0.062. 0.62.045.065 in the finals. So basically, three of his four were within 0.003 seconds of each other. So remarkably consistent. And if that's his baseline, which is basically his average for seven passes on his first weekend of competition. <laughs> If you look at the semifinals of top fuel, three-fourths of the drivers had reaction times slower than Tony Stewart. Three-fourths of the eight in in top fuel. And in the final for top fuel, Brittany Force, she ran .034. The other driver in that final would have been slower on reaction time than Tony Stewart. So the point is, the guy delivered again. He had seven passes during the weekend. His worst was 0.07, and his best was 0.045. Remarkably consistent for a guy who'd never done this and really didn't have much practice at it before the event. So he was basically in the Xfinity level and the likes level, the second tier. Did he, did he win? No, he finished second. He reached he the final. Second. Okay. Reached a final. He uh, he actually qualified on his final run. He had to run uh, well enough in his last qualifying attempt to make the uh, step ladder finals. Did so and then reached through four rounds. Got to the final. Lost in the final by by just a mark a quick margin, but yeah. uh, lost to Madison Payne. So really good debut for Tony Stewart. So I don't know how long how old top fuel drivers can go to, but you know, I know John Forrest is what 75 plus. Well, he certainly could run another 15, you know, 20 yeah. years if he so wanted the point to, being, he could do it entirely say, you know, you think Jimmy Johnson has started a second career, Tony Stewart, if he wanted to do this, could do this again. And it's not just bucket list things. I have no doubt that he could be, it's a special skill that maybe he has, maybe he doesn't, but it sure looks like he might have something in that regard. I mean, yeah, I don't know if you've done it. I've I've been out to uh, the drag strip, and they've had these celebrity runs where they put you on the Christmas tree, and you get a chance with a you know with a with a car, a passenger car, to get off the line and see what your reaction times are. And when I've done it, you get like maybe three passes. The reaction times are are way off, way you know. They're never consistent because the first time you're like, I'm, I'm too jacked up and, and you go too soon. The second time I'm going to, I'm going to wait. And then your reaction time is like 1.2 seconds. 
I mean, Tony Stewart just ran seven of these under the watchful eye of a big crowd and a television audience and did it time after time after time, seven in a row, all within a blink of the eye. That's that's talent. Interesting stuff. Okay, we'll see what's next for for Stewart. And he was happy to put a dig in at NASCAR when he was interviewed, saying it's the most fun he's had at a racetrack in a long time. And he accentuated long time uh, several times. And I think he even made it clear that he was speaking about NASCAR, not any other type of track that he hadn't had as much fun uh, in. Uh, okay, uh, David Mostra Lopez had a story that uh, IndyCar fans, it's, it's a story that we see written probably two or three times a year by different people, but we, we get really excited about it. So we'll digest it and uh, talk amongst ourselves whether we think there is a realistic chance of, of it coming to fruition and to what degree. The headline, Roger Penske, IndyCar looking to add more ovals in the future. Um, goes on to say in the subheadline, nothing concrete to report yet. So here are some of the quotes from Roger to motorsport.com. We're looking in Milwaukee and to how we can add ovals to our schedule in the future, but we certainly don't have a deal to return there. And anything you've heard like that is somewhat speculation. No deal done at all. So I would not want you to think that at all. I can just say we're looking at a number of different locations and that's one of them. A lot of work needs to be done before it would be acceptable to us. So that's another aspect we've got to figure out. It's like all these things. We have ideas where we want to go, but there's a lot that needs to be done to make it happen. The story talks about the Iowa model and how that worked as well. Roger Penske adds, then from the television perspective, we have to look at what weekends are available, what time of the year we want to be racing there, et cetera. So it's not just a case of, hey, let's go here and it works. There's a lot of effort that needs to be put in over a long period. He was asked about super speedways, including Pocono, if they might possibly be on the medium or long-term agenda. And then I will paraphrase, he avoided that. He didn't talk about Pocono or anywhere else, but did say and gave us, I think, a little bit of information on what the Texas event might look like moving forward. Quote from Roger Penske, the good news is we're going back to Texas. That was a big one that I was really anxious to do because I want to have a high-speed oval for anyone that's going to run Indianapolis. It's good for the drivers and the teams to have had the experience of Texas. If you go back to the old days to run in Indianapolis, we had to run Mark Donahue first at Phoenix and Trenton before we could even go to Indianapolis to take the rookie test. I think that was a good system because we need to make sure that we don't have people just buying rides for the 500 and trying to run at the Speedway right away unless they're really experienced. So we're going to invest heavily in the Texas race and try to make it a success, not just for preparing for Indy, but also because that is a key market for not just us, but also for MTT. We're trying to have a robust schedule, one that has great track diversity, and we've got to make all the events work and be able to put on a great show on all types of track. Yeah, I I think uh, my first thought with Texas is that's good to hear. It really mm-hmm. is good to hear that he's – he values it to the level that I think it deserves. I think his logic of of running a high speed oval before Indianapolis is is certainly rooted in experience. It's rooted in in uh, in reality, and and I think it's an important thing for a young driver to have run at Texas, even though Texas is not Indianapolis in a lot of respects, and they have a lot of dissimilar characteristics. I think that's a, a, a good thought process. 
Um, and so we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it, it sounds like to me uh, the sanctioning fee isn't as high as as uh, as maybe it was in the past. And it also tells me that IndyCar is going to invest in in the promotional effort uh, to make that event uh, succeed. The second thought I had relative to Milwaukee is, and this kind of gets back to as we look at the summer schedule, it starts. There are there are places where you can place Milwaukee. We should all want Milwaukee, and we do. But it 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 is unfortunate, and this goes back to the reason why IndyCar is going to the Thermal Club in Los Angeles, or Palm Springs is probably a better description. There just aren't many places to run that aren't right in the middle of the summer. You know, in terms of an oval track, you're going to run an oval probably in the summer, and it gets crowded pretty quickly. And um, so I'd be I'd take Milwaukee back in a heartbeat. Uh, it sure would be nice if we had one of these tracks. I guess Phoenix comes to mind where you could go run and, and you could run outside of the uh, mid-June, July, mid-August timeframe, because that's where we need more races. And the, the key with the uh, the quote was invest. We're going to invest in Texas. We don't still know what that means. It could be a reduction in sanctioning fee. You know, ideally, and, and this was mentioned in the story as well, it was referred to as Iowa work because of finding a promoter. You know, and that could be described as, and I don't know if that was Roger's quote or the way David wrote it, I can't recall. Um, you know, in some minds, people think of High V as a promoter, and they really weren't the promoter. IndyCar was the promoter, but in some ways, High V was the promoter. You know, they're not officially the promoter, but that is what you need. No matter, I essentially, IndyCar is going to need the promoter because you can't it, ask a company to promote. They don't know how to do that. But you need their money and their uh, vehicles to go out and help you do the promotion for the race. I think I would say it this way. IndyCar was the promoter. Hy-V promoted. And and I think that's yeah. that's what happened. Yep. So that's obviously ideal is if you can find another company like that that wants to invest in that market, in that event, and frankly, help you cover a lot of the costs and in return, get them a return on what they're doing and make it a big event. They like to do things big in Dallas. Let's do it big in Dallas. Let, let's see what can happen. And then can you take that same model into Milwaukee? And there was a, a feeling, oh, I'm going to say last February or March, before we got to Texas, that Milwaukee was being talked about as, well, what if Texas isn't going to work in 2023? We need to come up with another oval we better try to figure out how to resurrect Texas, uh, to resurrect Milwaukee. Now it can be said, well, maybe it's in tandem with. Because also going back with what Roger said, if Texas didn't work and it goes away, Milwaukee, yes, it's another oval, but it doesn't really replace it. It's a totally different kind of track. It's not the super speedway type experience he's hoping to have for drivers before the Indy 500. And it's also not an oval before the Indy 500. Maybe you could run it the first weekend in May, but that'd be iffy. What are the chances that it's 44 degrees uh, and sleeting in Milwaukee the first weekend of May? 30, 40% of chance of that. Decent chance. Yeah. So that needs to be a summer race. No, it absolutely needs to be. I mean, I was at, I woke up in uh, Nazareth one day to snow <laughs> uh, in the first week of May or, or maybe the last couple of days of April, but the same could could happen in Milwaukee 
And, uh, you know, Milwaukee, though, one of the things that's exciting about Milwaukee, in addition to the actual racing, is that that's a community where the companies that are based there have a great um, pride in their community. Miller was such a tremendous sponsor in Milwaukee. And uh, a company like Miller, maybe not of that of that height, but I think a Milwaukee-based company uh, would be very interested in promoting the city and the community. Uh, and so I think it could work uh, if, if the hy V model could be replicated. I still hold out hope for Richmond too. That, and, and Richmond gives you some more options. You can't go too early in the spring, but you could do late April, early May at Richmond. And again, I don't have the NASCAR schedule in front of me, so that's always a problem. But here's the thing. I wouldn't worry about what the NASCAR schedule is, even for next year. If we're, ta- we're talking at this point about 2024. NASCAR execs have already said, we're blowing it up again next year. Uh, so the 24 NASCAR schedule may look totally different than the 23 schedule. So everything is available. And that's why that impacts IndyCar, because now some things that you couldn't do because a race has to be a certain at a track that runs NASCAR has to be a certain distance on the calendar away from it. Hey, maybe that's changing and maybe they're going from two to one that opens up some other markets. And Roger didn't directly answer as, you know, a, a smart person does the question about a uh, Pocono or others is that tells me that's, that's fairly unlikely at this point. You know, you never say never. And he didn't want to say never, but let's just avoid that and move on to something else. That's how media trained people answer questions when, you know, the answer is probably not what the people are looking to hear because people, certain people want to hear we're going back to Pocono and just as many would be outraged, right? If they heard we're going back to Pocono, that was very split. Yeah. That's a tough subject. Um, Yeah. I don't think think you're going to have to worry about it because the business model hasn't worked well enough where you're getting into the reasons that people don't want to go to Pocono. It doesn't, you don't have to deal with it at this point because it's not like it was a slam dunk business wise. It was better than some of the others. It might've been improving. I think you could make a case for it, but it was far from a slam dunk. And the other super speedways talk about it didn't go well. I don't see enthusiasm for resurrecting Michigan. At this point, they're tearing down Fontana, we think, uh, as as it speaks. So that won't be a conversation moving forward. All right, let's sneak in a tweet because Sandberg Moose, um, and and apologies for not getting to this, or luckily for all of us, we've had a lot of things to talk about. So there's not full time involved. But I wanted to get this in because he sent it twice now. Now that it's the offseason, can you tell us the story of how Trackside came to be and how y'all met? So we would have met long before Trackside came to be, but maybe that's the easy one. So I can kind of recall that. came out of a need for me. So maybe I'll start, and then you tag in what your motivation was. Uh, so Trackside started in around February of 2008. Jan- late January. Late January of 2008. So I had worked full-time at the radio station for a long time doing a nightly talk show. And I had been doing more and more motorsports as I started working for IndyCar Radio uh, pretty much full-time starting in 2004. And my knowledge and interest uh, increased. And, and I first had the idea that I wanted to do something like 
Robin Miller did when I co-hosted with him on the old sports talk on WIBC, which Robin started in 93 or 94 with Jim Barber. And they did a racing night on Tuesdays. And they would, you know, normally it was a Colts, Pacers, IU, Purdue type of show, but they would do an hour or so within the show where they would do nothing but motorsport and get and get guests on. So I thought, well, I want to do that for my show. So we'll do it on a Monday night, the second hour of my show. And I don't know when I started doing that, somewhere in late 2006, 2007 or so. So had that kind of within my show, in, in within Sports Talk. And then I got fired in October of 2007, rehired the next day to do a lot of part-time work at the radio station, was still working for the Pacers and the Colts and IndyCar Radio. But I was looking just to piece as many things together as I could and try to still do some things at the radio station. And by the way, note to the kids, when you get fired, go out easily, go out well, don't burn bridges. And many people have used that example of, uh, I got fired and I'm still here. You know, through ownership changes, call letter changes, frequency changes, I'm still here because I said, okay, I understand. What else can we do? And then that was part of the what else can we do, along with reporting on the Colts and the Pacers and working uh, for the teams on broadcasts that aired on the radio stations. I said, hey, uh, Kurt Cavan, I used to use him as a co-host or a fill-in for me on, on my show. Let's do a motorsports-only show. And they bought it. And that was pretty much the end of it. So I remember that about a month before this came up, somebody else asked me about doing a weekly radio show. And it doesn't matter who the person was, but I would just say he didn't have the, the you're the pro. I always thought you were the pro, the radio pro. And uh, so I just, I, I remember being asked by the station, uh, you know, would you like to do it with this person? And I said, if I'm going to do it, I'd like to do it with Kevin Lee because he's a pro and get us in and out of breaks. And, and I've done his, uh, I've hosted his show in his absence a few times. And I think he's a pro and I'd like to do it with Kevin and, and, and our worlds must have, have come together at the exact same time. And you made their recommendation and I made a separate rep recommendation without actually ever talking to each other about this, or maybe we did, but we didn't have a depth in depth conversation. And, a couple of weeks later, they said, uh, let's get started and let's try it. The, the interesting part of the story from my standpoint, and we're going we're in 15 years now, the interesting part is they told us they would do this show through the Brickyard 400, and then, then they'd probably take the rest of the year off. They would like to do this. Oh, and okay. and two, weeks after, two weeks after we started the show, unification of the sport happened, and then they couldn't turn it off. There were too many people hot for IndyCar and we just rolled through and we've never stopped. So uh, that was an interesting part of the story. I forgot about that. I, I know of the third person and I remember he approached the station and said, I'd like to do a, a racing show. Uh, and, and then eventually they, they came to us. And so we have Kent Sterling to thank. He is the, he was the program director at the time that I had worked for previously and continued to work for. And he's the one that greenlit the show so thank Kent for that. And I do recall that, so we did get extended past the Brickyard to go through the end of the season. And I think that first year we stopped in whenever it was, September, October, whenever the season ended. 
And luckily there was um, interest in more. So we did a podcast only at times. So if I was in the station for a Pacers game, we would do 20 or 30 minutes that we would post to a podcast each week. And then I, I don't know if it was the next winner or the winner, but shortly after that it was, Hey, if we're going to bother doing a podcast, let's put the thing on the radio. And then pretty soon it became year round with the exception of a couple of weeks off around Christmas. Uh, one final thought is, well, two, actually, uh, we've never had a show. We've, we've gone into a lot of shows saying, I don't know what we're going to talk about. We've never, <laughs> we've never had a show where we, ended because we were done. We've, we've ended because we were out of time. Second thing I would say is we've never really had a disagreement on this show. We'd continue to have interesting conversation among two guys that enjoy the sport and we like working together. And then the third element is just this morning when I came to the office, uh, Mark Miles said, you know, it's really good that you guys have this show. It's, it's an interesting add to the community and the, and the racing world. And we're glad you have it. And I thought that was maybe appropriate for the conversation. And I, I will be honest, one of my motivations for continuing the show, even when I'm busy, is one, the, the, the listeners have become our friends and our family. And two, it's prep I need to do anyway. And it kind of helps get me ready during the season for the racing weekend. And then now, one, I am, as we like to say, casually employed at this time. It gives me a purpose each week. I, I like to be able to go through Twitter and, you know, oh, cut and paste that story. That's something we can talk about next week. And and I, I like to have that aspect of it, but it really keeps us up on things. And it's, you know, it's fun. It's I, I like it from the NBC side of things as well. You know, I'll be honest. Sometimes I, when something comes up that I'm wondering why should I speak about that? Uh, and here's another way I look at it though. I feel like I can be an outlet I'm not a spokesman for NBC or for the producers or anyone else, but sometimes there's just a simple explanation that people don't understand of why we did something this way or why this happened. And nobody else has a radio show. Yes, they could send out a statement, but nobody wants to send out statements for basic things. So I, I do like having a platform to being able to explain to hardcore fans. They may not always buy it, but you, most of the time it's, oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, I get that. I see how that happened. And how that was somewhat unavoidable. So I enjoy that part of the platform as well. But but mostly it's um it's just fun to interact with people. We are glad that they continue to support the program. So we'll get into any other tweets that we've missed for tonight coming up in just a little bit. And a chance to visit with Jamie Little. If you made it to the end of the program last week, you heard a, uh, a little cameo for about 15 seconds with Jamie at the end of last week's program. So I said, we're going to get you back on for a proper segment because we got a lot of things to talk about. NASCAR, working on the Westminster Dog Show. How cool is that? And more all coming up with Jamie Little of Fox Sports, Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Hi, this is Mark Zerickson, and you're listening to Trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Thanks for staying with us. Trackside continues on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. We've talked a lot of IndyCar. We've touched on NASCAR. But let's find somebody that pays a little closer attention and has a little more insight into what's going on for their championship weekend coming up this weekend. You'll see the Xfinity race on USA Saturday evening, the Cup race Sunday in NBC, and the Camping World Truck Series race on FS1 late Friday night. Jamie Little 
will be a part of that broadcast as well. Uh, we, If you made it to the end of last week's show, you got a little cameo of, of Jamie. So we said we're going to have a, a proper segment this time around. We'll talk about what we were doing in Fort Lauderdale in a moment. But let's talk NASCAR. And, and the end of this race that we saw at Martinsville, the cup race, on Sunday afternoon, there are still some mixed feelings about the playoff format. Some of the old school fans, you know, still wish it was the the old season long points race. But I remember when it was announced, one of the things mentioned was we'd like to have playoff moments, like a walk off in an NLCS or a game winning field goal in the AFC Championship game, and and they certainly got that. I guess times two on Sunday afternoon. That's so true, Kevin. I, I love this format. I, I understand that people, you know, sometimes they don't like change and, and that's okay. But I 100% am behind NASCAR and making the decision to go to a play of, playoff kind of format. It has just gotten better and better. And now fans have come to expect those moments because we get them. Undoubtedly, we are going to get them. Not once, not twice. We get them three or four times throughout the playoff system. And, you know, for example, Christopher Bell, not just once did he have to win in a must-win situation to move on. He did it twice this year in the playoffs. That's impressive. And from a guy that you don't really expect it from, you expect him to run up, you know, in the top five, top ten. But Christopher Bell, he put a weapon on him, and he did it under a ton of pressure. I don't know if it's the fairest way, but you know what? Uh, The stick and ball sports, it's not always fair. You can dominate the regular season, and if you have a bad week, you get eliminated. But what I will say is it it adds to my reasons to watch with the points as they run. And you've always got two two races within a race. So from that sense, I do like what the playoffs have brought. Yeah, for sure. And it's just like stage racing. You know, some people love it. Some yeah. people hate it. But it gives you that excitement. It gives you that feeling when the stage ends. These guys, they race like it's the end of the race. And you get it three times every weekend, every Sunday. Um, and I think that's brought a lot to it. And the drivers have had to learn how to adjust and how to get more aggressive and get up on the wheel. And I think it's really paid off. And, and I mean, this year is no exception. What we saw last Sunday at Martinsville was uh, truly something special. So is Christopher Bell like the number 12 seed in the NCAA tournament? Or maybe that's <laughs> too low. Or, you know, the seven seed in the NBA or a wild card to make the final four. How how surprising is this if we look back to when the season started, especially? Yeah, I think, you know, Chess, when you look at the four that are in there, Chastain, you've got Chase Elliott, Joey Logano, and Christopher Bell, and you can handicap their seasons. But, you know, like Chase was the favorite for maybe a month, and then it goes away. With this new car, it has really leveled the playing field. And the hardest thing about this year is choosing a favorite. Or choosing somebody who's going to win this weekend. Going into Sunday, there's no way somebody can tell me that one of these four is the favorite in the standout and hands down going to walk away from it. It's just not going to happen. So I would say Bell, he's definitely one of the longer shots coming into the season. Like He's always solid, but he hasn't done a ton of winning at the cup level yet. He's still a young driver. So I think it's a surprise that he's in the final four. Um, and when you look at an upset, like a, a Cinderella story, I think you have to go with Ross Chastain. I mean, the guy's been there all season, but when you look at the experience level he has, the young driver, the young team, everything, the odds were stacked against him. And this guy is here. He's had two wins this year. And uh, we haven't even talked about what he did on Sunday to get into the championship four. 
So we'll go back to the team and to Ross in a moment. Um, but what he did, the video game move, this is the debate this week. Will something need to be done about that? Or do we say it's never happened before? Let's make it happen another time before we worry about changing the rules. Yeah, I don't think you're going to go out to Phoenix this weekend and see, you know, four or five drivers trying to pull that move. I, I It's just that is something that has been around in video games since I heard as far back as 2005, they've been able to pull that move on a video game. Nobody had ever tried it at this level of racing and it shocked everybody. Now who has the bravery to do it or ever attempt it again? I don't know. I mean, I think it, it raised a lot of eyebrows and maybe have some guys that are aggressive thinking that it would be pretty awesome. And I'm going to put that in my back pocket, but as far as, officiating. I'm not a fan of officiating. I'm not a fan of like something happens once and oh, we better put a rule on it. This is racing. That's a race craft. That's something that Ross came up with. Ross executed. He didn't wreck anybody else in the process. And all he did was punch his ticket to the next round to have a shot at the championship. So I don't agree with, with officiating. I mean, if it's something that somebody else tries and they wreck the field doing it, then maybe you take a second look at it. Jamie Little is joining us from Fox Sports. So let's get to Ross Chastain now. Uh, The team level, I think more are familiar with that, Pitbull, and what Trackhouse has done in in just their second year. Remember, this is the old Chip Ganassi organization that never came this close to a championship. So that's a story within itself. But tell me about Ross Chastain and how unlikely, if, if that's the right word this is, or maybe more accurately, how far he has come. Uh, I remember covering him in Xfinity races. Well, I guess it's been three, four, five years. And he was driving for very low budget Xfinity teams, just happy to be a part of the program. Ross Chastain is the blue collar man. Like he is, he comes from a farming family, literally watermelon farmer family. Like I think it's four generations now from Florida. And you are so right. He is that guy. If somebody asked him to drive their truck, he would say yes. Drive the car, he would say yes. There were years there that he would literally race in all three series in a single weekend. And that's when he really got on my radar because Ross would be up there. He was aggressive. He would have good results. But it wasn't like he was going out and winning because, like you said, he wasn't always in the best equipment. He was out there to race anything and everything. If somebody asked, he wanted the experience. Well, he finally got his shot. Well, let's back it up for a second. You mentioned Chip Ganassi. Finally, Ross Chastain, all the fans are rooting for him because he's the underdog. He gets a ride. Finally, he deserves it. He's going to be full-time in the Xfinity Series. Boom. We know what happens to his sponsor. It's It goes sideways. It never happened. Uh, DC Solar back in that era, I think it's been, what, four, three or four years now, I think. Time is flying by, but so, yeah, so Ross didn't get that opportunity. So it's like, okay, what's next? And he had to go back to, you know, plan B where, you know, he raced for whomever. All of a sudden track house comes along and Justin Marks really sees something and Ross gives him a chance, you know, what he was doing over at Ganassi and that whole organization. And Ross has just, he has set the world on fire. I think he's really shown what he's capable of. Justin Marks is all about it. He backs his driver 100% in his ability, his skill, his aggressive nature. He stood by him, and that's allowed him to spread his wings and really do what he's doing and now has a chance for the championship. And I'm looking forward to him bringing a program to the Indy 500. I talked with Justin about that last summer, and he said, yeah, I'm working on it, and he's told other people the same thing. I don't know if it will get done 
uh, in time for 2023, but I think we'll eventually see him. Jamie Little is joining us. So uh, Jamie and I have known each other for a long time, but have probably never spoken for more than about two (laughs) minutes as we cross paths working for different networks, not usually the same events. And we got to work together for the first time with our, our friends at Short Shoot, a production company for the Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show that's going to air on the Fox Networks for the first time this Sunday evening at 6 p.m. on FS2. You will not see me. Anything said brilliantly, though, by any of the hosts, I'm going to take credit for your first time working on the boat show. What you think of it? Yes. Oh, my gosh. First off, what a great team. We just and hopefully it'll show on the air just how much fun we had with this group. None of us, like you said, Kevin, we had never worked together before. And the others on this show never worked together. I mean, I was meeting people for the first time. And then you make this amazing, fun show that we did. Hopefully it comes across like that. But oh, my gosh. And then not even to mention our subject matter. I mean, you're walking on these multi-million dollar yachts that most people couldn't dream of ever stepping on because you have to show that you have that kind of money in the bank to even look at it. Um, and we're going to bring those boats to you at home. So it was incredible. So there uh, is going to be quite a few airings of this program. The first one is actually 5 p.m. Uh, no, no, 6 p.m. this Sunday, FS2. And then there are a few more on FS2. There's one on FSR in Canada. For those of you that do not get FS2, the first FS1 airing is scheduled for Saturday morning, December 10th at 9 a.m., What I would basically say is put Fort Lauderdale International Boat Show in your guide every few days. It's going to air a lot. That's what's great about these shows. It's kind of generic. It doesn't have a timestamp. So you'll see it when when there if there's a rain delay. I hope there's not. But there's a rain delay (laughs) coming up next spring at uh, Daytona uh, on one of the FS1 shows. You might see Flibs put in there in place. So we knew you were already versatile uh, with everything you've done before making your way up to doing big-time motorsports. But I have to ask you about the Westminster Dog Show. So now I know two people. (laughs) Kelly Stavis did the NBC version of the National Dog Show, and you've worked on the Westminster now. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Anybody that knows me and follows me, and I know there's a lot of Hoosiers, too, that that share my passion and love for dogs, but that is the say-all, be-all job. I mean, when I came over to Fox, gosh, it's been seven years now, I asked the bosses first, like, uh, other than my NASCAR duties, I please just put me on the Westminster Dog Show. I'm begging you, let's make it happen. And the schedule, you know, didn't work out the first couple of years because it coincides with speed weeks for Daytona. But it finally did. And now I'm, I'm the lone reporter out there. And it is incredible. There's about... 2,500 to 3,000 dogs that show up at this show and they're all pristine. They are the best of the best of every single, uh, breed. We had 210 different breeds. It, it, it's truly incredible. It's so much fun, Kevin. And we take over Madison Square Garden in New York City. Um, it's just, it's like a show made for the movies. You, you're an indie native now or an indie resident now. Plug the, the local business. Oh, yes, yes. And I know there's a lot of race fans that have already checked it out, but we own nothing but cakes. So if you're in the mood, this is our busy season for the holidays. So if you need a cake or you need a hostess gift, we've got them. Uh, Keystone location is our first one. And then Whitestown, we have that one as well. So that's fun. And sometimes I even play delivery driver. Fantastic. So you (laughs) might order something from nothing but cakes and network broadcaster Jamie Little might bring it to your residence. Fantastic. You never know. 
True story. Yes. All right. My off time. I need something to do. I need to stay busy. Yeah, you're going to have a full one about uh, four weeks off before you get back to, to yeah. work and go to Daytona <laughs> in, in uh, January or February. Jamie, it's good to catch up with you. Thank you so much. We'll look forward to uh, watching you on FS1, actually FS2 for uh, the pre-race show at 9 o'clock our time, Eastern time on Friday night. And then I think the truck race is at 10 o'clock Eastern with our buddy Vince Welch and Phil Parsons and probably Michael Waltrip and others on Friday night, and then uh, USA and NBC will have the Xfinity and Cup race stuff this weekend as well. Thanks, Jamie. We'll see you soon. Yes, looking forward to crowning some champions, and uh, good talking to you, Kevin. We'll do it again. Jamie Little from Fox Sports. Stay with us. We'll see what we missed coming up next. Trackside 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan. Okay, final segment, and we've got a few minutes to chat here. By the way, next Tuesday night, 7 o'clock, I believe, is the time again. 7 until 9, we'll see what the news ferry delivers for us. The off-season's been here for a little while, but the news has not stopped, and that's all good. A few tweets at Kevin Lee 23 from Connie at Connie B. Indy. I'm wondering if Zach Brown is trying to destroy IndyCar from the inside, Connie writes. He keeps luring young drivers and now sponsors with f1 promises just a fear i have so my answer to that would be he's really and their approach is no different than others are everyone is always trying to lure the best talent away and you can look down the history you see a lot of sponsors that have moved from one team to another or at least a few sponsors But there are a lot that have been approached about moving from one team to another. So that's nothing new as well. He just happens to have more assets. Now, I know a lot of people in the paddock, especially on competing teams, are not super happy about Zach's presence because the price is rising for crew members, engineers, drivers, everything else. Um, But, you know, hopefully it kind of rises everything. And, and we see more of the good from this. But he's competing, and he's using whatever he has, and everyone else would do exactly the same if they had those assets behind him, or at least do pretty close to the same. Oh, one other thing I forgot in answering Sandberg Moose's questions about the origins of the show. He asked how Kurt and I met, and I don't know of a specific time, but we would have been covering the same thing. So we probably met about the time that I got to Indianapolis and got in the business, you know, covering a Colts practice. Uh, Kurt would have done a little bit of that. He was covering more college basketball. So along with racing, so probably at the track. I don't know that our paths would have crossed that much, but he would occasionally do stuff with the Colts and occasionally do sidebar things with the Pacers. So somewhere in the mid-90s is when we first met. Uh, This came from... Uh, Kyle H said, I had this idea for a while now. Road America, tow a portable stage to the turn five apex, open the track to the fans, have a podium celebration, imagine the atmosphere and visual that would create. And it is worthy of, of a thought because there is a good crowd there and you've got the big screens and everything else. And, and I would also say this. We're not the first to think of that uh, because I'm pretty sure that's where NASCAR does their burnout interviews. NBC sends a reporter down there when the driver does a victory lap, he does his burnout and does that for that very same circumstance. So it's something that that could be done. 
The challenge with doing the podium, the whole podium there, though, is you you need to take multiple crews, meaning cameras and announcers, down there to do the interviews with those three people. Maybe it could be done with just one person, but you'd like to have multiple voices doing those interviews. And then that keeps them from interviewing four, five, six, and so on. So maybe if you're on a network window and you know you're getting no more than three interviews in, maybe you go ahead and do that. Then you stop down as you go to Peacock. So it's it's a worthy of thinking about because it is a good visual there. Uh, or or maybe we think about doing a, a winner's interview there to kind of show the atmosphere and do the others. But it, it's something to think about. Good thought there. And... Finally, Matt Henniger at Photomat sent this tweet to me and a few others with a picture. So he was kind of on top of the NTT thing as well. He sent a picture at the Ganassi headquarters showing their partners, and there was no NTT logo out there. It's PNC, American Legion, Husky, Husky Chocolate, and Parkland. And if you're wondering what Parkland is, that's, uh, I think, a parent company of Ridgeline Lubricants, which came as sort of an association with Kiffin Simpson, who is an Indy Lights driver who has a development deal with Chip Ganassi Racing. Uh, Parkland and Ridgeline are associated with Kiffin's dad's company. So that's all how all of that came together. Out of time. Thanks to Jamie Little. For Kurt Cavan, Josh Molinix, I'm Kevin Lee. We'll see you next Tuesday night here on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.